0: Hello and welcome to Living While Feminist. Living While Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Jared Thompson. Jared is a queer researcher and academic whose poetry, fiction, and nonfiction has been published in various journals, notably the Johannesburg Review of Books, the Gerald Crack Award Anthology Volume 3, and Image Outright Anthology. He recently won the inaugural 2020 Afritondo Short Story Award. Jared's piece in Living Well Feminist is called The Social Dynamics of Penetration, and in that piece he says, The social dynamics of masculinity, femininity and gay sexual positions made me think about how the act of penetration or being penetrated comes with assumptions about masculinity and how one portrays oneself as a gay man. So today I'll be talking with Jared about gender performance, equality and writing. Welcome Jared.
1: Thank you. That was such a lovely introduction. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's great to be here uh, talking about these topics, these juicy topics.
0: Yeah, juicy. <laughs> yeah. yeah so, I mean, your piece explores the ideas of tops and bottoms. Yeah. Can you tell us why you thought the question was important for a feminist collection? And maybe for listeners who don't know what we're talking about at all, if you could just explain what we are discussing today.
1: Okay, so just to get the, the terms out of the way, um, when it comes to Gay, gay male lingo. Uh, a top is traditionally the man who is strictly penetrates sexually in a relationship, and the bottom is the one who is penetrated. Um, and it has been the whole dynamics of tops versus bottoms, and and men who only want to penetrate and and, and don't allow others to penetrate them, and and things like that. It it had always followed me the this question of why as gay men we sort of put ourselves in these boxes when the world has already put us in a box and I guess when the call for the feminist anthology came out um, it seemed like an opportune time for me to try and put a language to what I had been thinking and feeling um, and when it comes to the relationship between feminism and, and gay rights. I think it's a very it's a very intimate relationship, although there, there there's a lot of nuances between it. But I always see the relationship as being one of like they need each other because you can't I don't see a person being gay and not being able to be feminist because it's almost like you're rejecting a part of yourself if you're not feminists if you don't see the ways that patriarchy not only affects you but affects the woman in your life and outside of your life if that makes sense so these so they, they've they always sort of these movements have always sort of grown alongside each other and have and have enriched each other also and learned from each other as well
0: yeah and i what you're talking about in your piece isn't simply just a sexual preference, right? It's not simply a preference yeah. to be penetrated or a preference not to be penetrated. It's about how um, bottoms are disparaged in terms of their masculinity because they are penetrated. And so, uh, so you say in your piece, if heteropatriarchy dictates that real men are the masculine men who excru- exclusively penetrate others, then we need to question the power dynamics in gay relationships. Talk to me here about... How this is a reinforcement of patriarchy to disparage bottoms.
1: Well, the thing with patriarchy is that it wants, or masculine patriarchy, heteropatriarchy, masculinity, it wants to be the active penetrator in a sexual relationship. It it struggles to let go of control and be submissive in a lot of not only sexual ways, but in a lot of other areas in in one's life and when it comes to the power dynamics it's interesting because in the gay community there is a lot of bottom shaming sort of and stigma against bottoms even though it's just someone claiming there's certain experience of sexual pleasure right um Whereas the piece that I was writing, it was also about, like you say, questioning what people would say as, oh, this is just my preference. This is just, you know, what I prefer to do. Um, And what I was trying to get at is a questioning of where those preferences come from and why they are so, why they seem to feel so entrenched in our personhood or who we say we are. and it, it doesn't only come with the sexual preferences in the gay community. I mean, it comes with racial preferences, it comes with fat phobia, femme phobia. Um, there's all these, these things that as gay men, we living in a heteronormative society, we sort of, we pick up on these things and these, we sort of, as we, as we grow and through teenagehood and adulthood, we, we gather these assumptions and we don't even know that we're gathering them until we, we actually sit back and we question our own complicity in, in the oppressive structures of patriarchy.
0: Well, we all raise, regardless of our gender, in this situation where patriarchy is normalized, where vulnerability is made to seem like weakness, where aggression is made to seem like dominance and success. And so it's pretty clear to me that there may be very many... Gay men who don't see the links between feminism and their politics because they've been encouraged to see things that that feminism challenges as weaknesses. There's still social capital in being a man, mm. um, regardless of your sexual preferences. That's not to say, obviously, that there's not discrimination in terms of sexual orientation, but just that there is a cultural capital that is rewarded for still continuing to perform like a heterosexual man as a gay man or a hetero willing to f- perform in the confines of the heteropatriarchy like you described them mm-hmm. so i'm interested then because there's these push and pulls to be the right type of man the right type of sexual partner what the reaction to your piece has been since it's been published
1: well I, i've had some some very interesting conversations with with a best friend of mine, and he's he's actually the one of the the people I sort of infer about in the in the piece because he had always said to me that he would never let a man that's more feminine than him um, penetrate him, um, and in the past it is something that him and I have both agreed on. Um, whereas now, going through the self question that I've I've gone through and writing this piece. Um, I had to see the way that me agreeing with him was problematic, and that in the past me not me sort of measuring a man's masculinity in accordance to me and what that meant for our sexual relationship like that that was problematic. And I think when it comes to the relationship between between feminists and gray, gay rights activists, it's really like you say, questioning your position in society. What has your embodiedness as a man given you? And what ways are you playing into these grooves of society? Because they're easier, right? Because it's so much easier to just fly by under the radar um, as a straight presenting gay man than to actually go out in the world and have the world sort of Rub up against you in these very uncomfortable ways, um, and in, for me, like I am sort of a, I guess you could say, a more straight-presenting gay man, and it's always been something that has interested me how I am able to fly under the radar as a gay man and what that sort of invisibility gives me, how it allows me to move through spaces easier. Um, so yeah, there's all these different these different nuances that come into play that that being that living on the fringes you would say gives you. But I guess the, the fringe is not just like one place, right? It's there are many different kinds of fringes on so many different levels. And I think for me, what's so powerful or in the potential of feminism is how these fringes, these fringe communities can speak to one another. Um, and and swap ideas and and enrich each other in that way.
0: And be allies. Um, yeah. And us. And also, too, I think like what you said is learning from one another, sharing similar sites of protest and power discussions, because I think you're right in that the goals are ultimately the same. That is an end to sexist depression and having a better world where people can be themselves. Yeah. Um, So for me, I, I agree that they're very much aligned. I'm interested also that you say in your bio in the book that you are an avid yoga practitioner, which made me think of how I'm also a yogi and how we talk a lot about masculinity and and femininity, masculine and feminine energies in our bodies in um, yoga. Tell me about the place of yoga in your life and what interested you about it and what got you started on it.
1: So I started yoga about in 2016 and... At that time, I was playing collegiate level tennis, and it was a way for me to sort of improve my flexibility and all that other stuff. And it was a very sort of, okay, this is for my body sort of superficial thing. And the more I got into the practice, the more I sort of connected to my body. I started to really connect with the deeper philosophical teachings of yoga. Um... In the sense of like that sun and moon, masculine and feminine. And in my experience, the yoga has really connected me to my body, but not just to the masculine in my body, but also the feminine. And it's hard to, I mean, I guess as a yogi, you'd understand, but it's hard to explain to non yogis how you can walk into a yoga practice or have your own yoga practice and then all of a sudden, you tap into this, this emotional energy and it just rises and then eventually you find yourself crying on your yoga mat and you don't even know why you're crying, but you're crying. And it's just like this cracking open of these, I guess you could say this body armor that we don't even know that we're carrying around all the time, but we are. And when when I started to have those kind of experiences on my mat, I started to really sort of Reflect and say, "Wow, there's there's something here." You know, there's there's something that that the body has to teach, in the sense that in the sense of the kind of tension that it picks up in how we hold ourselves as we move through the world, and how yoga can tap into these other these other more more you could say feminine, you could say more vulnerable or or, or surrendering um, tendencies. That are actually quite relieving um, for the body and the mind.
0: Well, hip openers and crying, I think, is e- every yogi will know that feeling <laughs> <Yeah>. of suddenly <laughs> lying there in Varakanasana and thinking, what <laughs> the hell just <laughs> missed me yeah, yeah. No, for sure. But It is what you're saying. It's about alignment and not prioritizing one type of energy over the other, which. Mm-hmm. You mean, I mean, I think there's room for more to be written about yoga from a feminist perspective, um, examining the ways in which yoga encourages us to seek balance and also to be gentle with ourselves and others, which is a very helpful tool in the world. Um, you also studied English in the U.S. and then South Africa. Why did you decide to go to the U.S. to study and what was that experience like?
1: Uh, so I... Went to the US because I got a tennis scholarship to play tennis at Alabama State University, and I went there and I, I majored in, in English. Um, I previously wanted to do anthropology, but they didn't have anthropology there, so I went over there. And um, when I was there, that that's when I sort of realized, like, oh, I really enjoy. Um, the teaching aspect you know of university life and I could really be see myself being an academic and a writer and that's when I I decided that I would try and and take this road for myself but just like going back to the the yoga that you were talking about what you had mentioned it also made me think of how so I'm also pretty much into my very much into my weight training and I don't know if you've been to a public gym in the past year, or so it's it's a very masculine space. So it's very interesting for me, and I think it's something I I, I do still want to write about the the sort of pairing with, of weight training with yoga and how in this in my journey with yoga, this sort of how weight training is this this masculine energy are you channeling these sort of pushing weights and pulling them, and now yoga is more softer. It's a it's a very interesting dynamic at play there and I don't know yet if I have the language to actually express or explore that tension but it's definitely something that I can see me writing about in the future
0: I'm always interested in the men in the yoga studio and how they're performing their gender, obviously it's just my assumptions about them based on their gendered performance in mm-hmm. the room but um I had been to a a public gym, so I practiced yoga at home and then in classes at the Virgin Active and in other classes when I can afford it. But at the Virgin Active, there were a couple of these regular guys who were like, came into the room, made a lot of noise, took up a lot of space, did this like, I'm here and I'm a man type of thing. Even if it was a very gentle, yin type of yoga that we were practicing. But there was like a clear, they felt assessed or the need to show that they were doing this maybe as a as an addition to their other sports or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think you should definitely write about it. I'd really love to read a a coded analysis of the language men use to describe their reasons for doing yoga and and what it means for them in terms of their energy, especially in contrast to weight training, which is obviously a whole nother ball game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: I guess also with, when it comes to like the energies, like it's not, I think a lot of men take it or take feminine feminism as being like, Oh, um, it's just not creating any space for, for men or, or anything like that. But I think what yoga taps into is right. The, the masculine energy that is in female bodies, the, fe- the feminine energy that's in male bodies, like both, Male and female bodies have these kind of energies, have these kind of tendencies, and they can, different activities can activate them in in any gender, you know. Um, and it's not to say that masculine energy per se is negative or destructive, but that it has its place. And historically, it has had such a large space that now we find ourselves in the middle of you know climate change and in you know in one of the in historical period where we have large rates of inequality right so it's like what we have these energies but this one energy masculinity has been such a dominating force and i think feminism is sort of trying to carve out these these spaces um collectively where where these energies can balance
0: and where feminine energies are not degraded or seen as less important yes. or valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people who are not yogis are probably going, What are they talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, actually, I feel I mean, just, <laughs> we just keep going. Yeah. <laughs> you Should I put really? <laughs> yeah, I'll put a disclaimer. Yeah, I'll put it at the front like a trigger warning. <laughs> Um, you have been really busy writing over the past few years and your writing has been long-listed and shortlisted for a number of awards. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your writing process and what it is that you like to write about or what spurs you to get writing on a story.
1: So when I first started, got into writing, it was more so to sort of come to terms with my own uh, queerness. and. It was sort of a cathartic process for me and the more i wrote and got feedback on my writing from people that i trusted um i sort of started to branch out from my own personal experience and try try to really write about people that were not so close to me right people that sort of personhoods or characters that interested me in society and am i writing if i if i look back on the things that I've written, the short stories especially that I've written, it's usually focused there's always a queer element to it. I think that's sort of an inescapable part of my writing. But it's always a sort of delicate questioning of of race and gender. Um and with the story that won the Afritondo Award, that was a story about sort of classism. It was about a relationship between a domestic worker and her her employer um, in the Saxon world, and it was really about the sort of power dynamics um, when it comes to classism and post-apartheid. Um, and I think a lot of my stories are about power dynamics, not just in terms of power dynamics between people, but the power dynamics in oneself when it comes to mental health. How do we sort of take care of our mental health? How do we actually get a grip? Of ourselves and these divergent feelings that that arise and sort of rattle us. Um, So yeah, I think I think power has been one of the central parts of of what I what I'm interested in and what I write about.
0: And are we allowed to ask what you're writing about now or what you're working on now?
1: Yes, yes, again. I actually yesterday I just actually I was working on. I have been working on this story for a few weeks. Um it's about two a trans man and a trans woman. There is sort of like their it's about their friendship, and one of the characters wins a trip to um see Swan Lake in St. Petersburg at the Marinsky Theater, which is where it was like first performed. But this character, the the Avery's name's Avery. He has agoraphobia. He's sort of recently developed agoraphobia, so he struggles to go outside, but he really wants to go and, and like see Swan Lake. So it's really about how these, these two characters help each other through... Well, the one character helps the agoraphobic man to to the concert, to actually see the concert. And it was actually a really hard story to write because I actually didn't know how much How little i knew about trans individuals lives right and i had to really i was actually scared to write it because i was like i need to research this properly you know i do not want to mess this up so it took a lot of research a lot of um sort of backstory reading um because these these two characters are going through hormone therapy so i wanted to get the experience of hormone therapy very very accurate and all of that so it it was quite challenging
0: i'm interested in this feeling of fear as a writer about what stories you can write and what stories you have to get perfect or not at all Mm -hmm. and i wonder if there are any characters that you would still feel too afraid to write i think
1: I recently actually read uh, an essay by Zadie Smith, and she talks about a similar thing, how I guess in in this era of identity politics, it's sort of very um, touchy to write about an experience that's not your own. And and what Zadie Smith says in the essay is, you know, writing begins out of curiosity. Um, And for her, she says, the best writing for her comes from being interested in other people's lives, lives that she wouldn't have necessarily led. Sort of what she calls impossible identities that are so far removed from her. And I really connected with that. And I think a lot of the, the narratives and stories that I'm drawn to are people that are far removed from me. And when it comes to to writing about them and representing them, it really does take um careful attention and, and a deep reflection. And I think I think I'm, I I I sort of stay away from identities that I cannot relate to on some level. I mean with with most of the characters that I I create there is some part of them whether it's in some experience of of humiliation or triumph or joy there is some part of them that I can relate to and build from um and I think it is challenging for a writer but I think it's 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 a very sort of nurturing experience if you, if you do it carefully and if you take the time to read about and research um, those, those experiences and those types of narratives.
0: And do you have big dreams as a writer? I was asked, I'm asking because I listened to a podcast with Bernadine Evaristo, who obviously won the Booker Prize for Girl, Woman, Other. Mm. And she said she used to do visualizations of winning the Booker when she was younger. Wow. So, what are your dreams as a writer?
1: No, I definitely, I should actually follow her suit and do visualizations. <laughs> no, I definitely have big, big ambitions for myself. I, I do want to be a sort of established writer in SA and cross over to, to international markets. And if you throw in a big prize or two, that would also be great. Um, but yeah, I'm sort of trying to, to be where I am because sometimes, especially for me, I can get like so ahead of myself and put so much pressure on myself. So I'm trying to be where i am and work from there but i do definitely have hopes that my writing can can cross into an international market and and hopefully pick up some big prizes along the way
0: very nice and i think you're right set those visualizations in place now and we'll see you in the bookshelves all over the world soon (laughs) hopefully (laughs) Yeah, so I have three last questions that I'm asking all of the people who come on the podcast. And the first is, do you have a book that has inspired your feminism that you can recommend to some of our listeners?
1: Oh, a book that has inspired my feminism. I would say, can I say a person and not a, not a book? Well, she has writing out. I would probably say um, Sarah Ahmed's The Cultural Politics of Emotion. And in there, she writes about um she analyzes the way emotions work in in media in society, but she does it through a feminist lens and right at the at the end of the the book, she has an afterward where she writes about current development in feminism and how feminism is really about sort of defamiliarizing these these structures that are just seen as normal right and having a sense of, of of awe with the world in the sense that the world has not things have not always been like this it sometimes feels like the structures that are in place are, have always been in place but she says that to approach the world in this sort of this or state is to see that these structures can change, that they have not always been this way and that it is possible to alter them and to change them. And I really connected with that. And and I love um, Sarah Ammer's writing. It's just amazing.
0: And do you have a quote that inspires you or that you live by?
1: Ooh, (laughs) a quote. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind is a quote from Alan Watts. He, I recently started listening to his audio books, and one of the things he says is he's talking about suicide, right? And he's like, "Why should we go on? You know, there's no point of going on." That's what people sort of say. Either there's a God that loves us, or it's just like a mechanical universe where we're just out here on this rock floating into into the abyss. And he says. Well, we only we only go on if the game is worth the candle, right? If the game of life is worth playing, and it's up to us to make it worth playing. And he just elaborates on that, and and in sort of seeing our our role in life in this sort of game, playful way. And ever since I heard that quote, it, it's it's really spoken to me, and and helped me also to see like the lighter side of things. That things aren't always so serious. That sometimes life really it's just a game especially in writing it it helps to see writing as a kind of play um and yeah that's always it's always comforted me in the times where i felt most alienated in the world
0: lovely and do you have any advice for other feminists on their journeys i would
1: say find your joy find those those pleasures that, that comfort you in the times when the world really does seem immovable. Um, and then probably most important, is, that has been most important for me, um, is finding others who you can speak to about how you feel and, and your sort of positions um, and and fostering these kind of very honest and vulnerable friendships with with people i think the friendships that i've made with other like-minded feminists or even it doesn't have to be like-minded right it could be just another feminist or just another person that can engage you on these sort of topics has been it's been the most comforting for me and the most relieving for me because um, I think sometimes uh, um, being a feminist can feel like a lonely road, um, but it pays to at least have um, a person or more than one person where you feel a sense of, of community, even if it's a small community. I think that's, that's really important.
0: Well, thank you, Jared, for your writing and for your honesty and sharing your stories with me today. Um, and good luck for the writing ahead. Thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It's been really invigorating.
0: <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.